Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have Isabel Thornton with me uh, from Restoration Housing. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. So um, my background um, as a student, I studied architectural history in college and I have always loved architectural history since I was a child, as far as I can remember. Um, My parents both love history, art history. Um, My grandfather was a professor of history. And so that just sort of was in my DNA, I think. Um, And I knew I didn't want to be an architect, but I just, you know, found myself in the architecture school at the University of Virginia and studying architectural history. One of my favorite classes was um, this course called Cities in History, who was taught by my thesis advisor, Del Upton, um, who I'm still a really big fan of. And it was the history of different cities going back all these different layers of the Mm. city from their first inception to, you know, maybe uh, like Constantinople, for example, Istanbul and all the different phases of um, religion and building and, uh, you know, just cultural history that's woven into cities. And that really resonated with me. And I think that's really informed a lot of what I do now, which is, preservation, but it's very focused on the city and Roanoke is the city that I live in and grew up in. And there's something about preservation on a city and kind of neighborhood scale that really fascinated me at an early age. Yeah. I think Um, that sounds like a really interesting, um, really interesting course. That sounds like something I would have enjoyed. Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. He started that up that, uh, I think, um, class on Constantinople playing the, they might be giant song and yeah, he's a really good professor. So, um, but yeah, it's just something about, um, architectural history. That's not just specific to a building, but kind of how it connects to broader social issues within a city. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's very, very interesting. Um, and then I went on to graduate school to study preservation, kind of just to further this interest in historic preservation and architectural history, but not really sure what I was gonna do with that degree. I just knew I loved this subject matter. Mm-hmm. And I went to the University of Southern California and their preservation program 
uh, was in their architecture school. Some of them are in the planning schools. It's very mm -hmm. interesting kind of how different universities take different approaches to preservation, but I ended up taking a lot of classes at the School of Public Policy in urban planning and found myself really attracted to the sustainable cities movement. You know, that looked a lot like um, what we call new urbanists in architecture and what we call um, uh, smart growth and urban planning. And it's just a lot of the sort of confluence of preservation and affordable housing were, you know, in both parts of these movements. And I, and I just found myself really attracted to both preservation and affordable housing intellectually and trying to marry the two concepts, but not really knowing how. Yeah, I, I can, I, I think that there is such a large overlap between preservation and sustainable building and green building and all of those concepts, but the preservationist and the green building people don't talk to each other. <laughs> they really don't enough or they kind of tried to, but then it fails and they just give up or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they're speaking, they're, they're all, they have the same goals, but they're speaking different languages. And I don't know if they know how to bridge that, but, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. Um, oops. bumped my cord that holds my microphone in. So if I went okay. for a second, that was, that was me. Uh, um, the, but I do think that those goals are, um, there, there, there's a lot of overlap that, mm -hmm. that needs to be worked on because it is very sustainable to reuse buildings rather than try to build new buildings that are greener. Of course. Yeah. And I think, um, there's just the smart growthers are looking for ways to kind of promote urban planning policies that are more green kind of on neighborhood and community levels. And they are, you know, urban planners by trade. So they don't really think from a design standpoint, you know, or a preservation standpoint, how you can use these existing buildings in your communities and how green that is just to not have to either tear down or build new or build out on a greenfield site, but to use your existing housing stock. Mm -hmm. And it's not, um, you know, it's, it's the greenest thing you could do. You've got all this embedded energy that you're, that you're preserving. And, um, and I think a lot of people get caught up in sort of the ways that historic buildings can be costly to maintain or hard to retrofit into being more environmentally conscious or environmentally, um, uh, sustainable, but, but really, I think, you know, yes, there are those costs, but once you get past that, they can be just like the, so, so much of a, of a energy save in the long run. Yeah, I agree with you. I was on a, um, and I was on a, uh, advisory committee for a 106 review and, I brought up reusing, there was, I could, you, most of the building was wrapped. You couldn't tell what was underneath it, but I brought up that you could see the original windows were up in the second floor mm -hmm. and, but it was a HUD project. They freaked out immediately. They were like, those windows have lead paint on them. And you know, like, and I'm like, you can get around that. Like there were things that you can yeah. do, but I'm like, and it was just like, we were, we were all working towards the same goals, but we were, we were, we weren't looking at it exactly the same, but I know like in a HUD project, lead paint is a huge, you know, a huge issue. So, you know, that, you know, so I just was, I, I, well, it's a huge issue if you keep them or you take them out either right. way, either you way you're making dust. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, okay, we, we have to deal with this one way or another. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was surprised because I'm used to dealing with preservationists that are used to dealing with, you know, fixing windows. So like they know how to deal with this. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that reaction. (laughs) Yeah. We, I mean, because we have sort of a dual mission of both preservation and affordable housing, we, we often deal a lot with HUD. We have funding that comes through HUD and um, the city of Roanoke or the state and all these sort of more, you know, government funding sources require us to be very compliant on one end and then we have to be really compliant on the preservation end because we're getting historic tax credits so we have um we have quite a bit of (laughs) compliance that we're used to on this point but even with all of that it's so worth it you know in my mind i think given the outcome of 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 what you can do with those sources yeah i agree so we've kind of talked about it but what what really interests you in preservation Sure. I think um, it's just sort of a true love of older buildings. I don't know that um, it's anything more complicated than that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really, I love, um, like I said, a, a historic architecture, older homes. I think that older homes are um, usually built in a really, uh, a much more, um, I guess, uh, a kind of substantial construction that you don't really see anymore since World War II. More substantive materials, forms of construction. Um, There's just like a, I mean, there's one property we did that we restored that had actual tree trunks for floor joists that were like full, I mean, not even, not even shaved down or anything, just like real trees. And it had the bark on them. Yeah. The bark on them and 200 years old and still going strong. And then you'll see a house like that. And then you'll see an addition that might've been built in say like the 1930s or forties falling down. Right. And so it's just, you know, I think these sort of, it's um, maybe a bit of nostalgia for the way that things used to be built. Mm -hmm. Um, A longing for that a little bit more and what we build today. I get a little depressed just driving around and seeing sprawl and big box construction and the way that we just keep building out further and more cheaply. Um, And so it started maybe with that, but then really wanting to bring a practicality to, um, you know, older homes that are vacant in Roanoke, which, you know, we're kind of an old um, railroad city in Virginia, not that old uh, compared to other parts of Virginia, but, um, but we have a lot of old housing stock right outside of our downtown core that um, has been you know, either suffering for several decades of mismanagement, Mm -hmm. uh, blight, vacancy, you name it. And so we, we kind of look for those houses to restore them because they're a great resource, I think, reflecting Roanoke's history and Roanoke's past. And, um, and I'm attracted to, you know, an opportunity to restore them, but I really want to do it in a practical way. Like what's the best use for this? What really serves the community? How do we activate this space? We're not just preserving it to preserve it. So we kind of think of it as like a lowercase preservation. It's got to have a purpose. We're reusing it. We're restoring it, but we're not just preserving it for the sake of history alone. Yeah, I, I often will say to people, especially people who are like really purists that that want like buildings to be, you know, like museum quality. I'm like, 
if a building's not useful, it won't be preserved. So they, buildings meet, need to be useful. Right. And even from a business standpoint, we're a nonprofit, but our buildings can't, I mean, we have to be able to afford the construction and we have to be able to afford the maintenance. So the buildings have to be, you know, kind of functional businesses in a way. Right. And so you can't have a property that has such extreme maintenance costs because of its historic nature that it's um, not uh, viable to, you know, to stay sustainable for our organization. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. So tell me, tell me about restoration housing. Sure. So I mean, like I said, I studied out in California and I was interested in these kind of dual uh, preservation and affordable housing um, ideas. And I was um, writing my thesis and studied a nonprofit in Pasadena called um, Heritage Housing Partners. I think that's right. Heritage Housing. And they, um, they're, their focus was on preservation and affordable housing in Pasadena in a way that I was really inspired by. Um, they did a mix of rental and homeownership opportunities that kind of have a, a lot of different ways of funding their projects that probably have different outcomes of what they offer. Some multi-unit, some single family bungalows, really cute little historic bungalows and bungalow courts. And I was writing my thesis on bungalow courts in Pasadena, I was really fascinated by the concept of sort of small scale, but dense affordable housing and using historic uh, resources to, to accommodate that. And, um, and so that's where the idea started. And then I got a lot of experience working in affordable housing for several large nonprofits for several years before I started restoration housing in Roanoke like I said, seeing this need of these vacant homes in Roanoke um, and the first rung suburbs right outside of our downtown, wanting to do something about that, but not really sure what. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really started with, okay, I'm gonna try to buy them, buy one using fundraising. We created, right. I created a nonprofit. Uh, we fundraised, purchased a property and then just funded that property through historic tax credits, the okay. first go round. But we have debt on that house. So then future projects, I started to, you know, branch out and grow as a nonprofit and realized grants that we could get. Um, so we now get grants both from small local foundations, uh, banks, um, but we also get large grants, like I said, from the city through HUD, through the state. Um, state Housing Trust Fund is a great resource. Um, and we combine all these grants and the tax credits, and we usually fully subsidize our costs so that the projects are debt-free. And so that really came from inspiration of other groups. Yes. I, I listened to the podcast you did a few, maybe weeks ago or a month or two ago with um, Bluebird. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, and kind of a similar uh, dual mission. Um, and, and really just like she said, she said, we're trying to solve two problems and that's sort of what we're doing too. We were seeing vacancy of historic buildings and then we were seeing both a strong need for more affordable housing, um, but really a strong need for quality affordable housing. There is a, there's a strong, I mean, there's a, um, there's a, a, a great deal of existing affordable housing in Roanoke that is very substandard people living in, um, in a lot of historic homes in these first rung suburbs 
that are not well maintained. Right. Um, by slumlords, for lack of a better term, they're really just um, that's what a lot of affordable housing looks like in Roanoke. And so we were trying to offer an alternative to restore these homes and have a really high quality um, experience for our tenants that we felt, you know, gave them dignity versus, you know, living in a slum. Yeah. yeah. And, and especially if you're using the historic tax credits, I mean, there's a level that you have to meet to be able to, right. to be able to um, qualify for those. Absolutely. It's sort of just like this embedded high quality that you have to have, you know, you have to have original hardwood flooring. Um, we are putting all new plumbing, electrical and mechanical systems. in. we are putting in um, custom cabinetry and new appliances and ceramic tile flooring and, I, I'm a big believer in large closets and in unit washers and dryers and things like that. So we really want to make it a nice, right. you know, beautiful space. Yeah. yeah. And then are you, um, are you like maintaining ownership of the properties and, and just renting them out? Yes. Okay. So stewardship kind of like what she was saying with Bluebird is really important to us. I think that, um, it's really important to help reduce the stigma of affordable housing for me, for people to see that good landlords are what really matters. Right. Um, I think when we first started, people were nervous about rental housing. They were nervous about light density, like more than one unit in an right. older home. And they were nervous about the term affordable housing. And all three of those things are sort of triggering for some people. Right. But we are trying to say the reason they're triggering are because of bad landlords. And if you have a good steward of the property, then you will see a home, I think, reflect very similarly to a single family homeowner right next door. And, and I still believe that when our first project got a lot of backlash. And now if you drive by, it looks just like every other single family home on the block um, and has, you know, we invested quite a bit into it and it's only added property values for its neighbors. It's right. not detracting in any way. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I probably mentioned it during the bluebird um, discussion, mm -hmm. but we um, there's a big push for affordable housing here in Lancaster city. And I sit on the historic review board and they're the developers are being pretty smart where they're picking um empty lots or non-historic properties to, to build these, these small scale apartment um, uh, complexes on or buildings, I guess they're just buildings. They're not, it's not an entire complex, but the amount of uproar in the neighborhood that, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to put affordable housing in our neighborhood. They're going to, and I'm like, but, but, but it's they, the neighborhood did the same thing when um, there was a, 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 Gothic style house that had been a fraternity house that a nonprofit that um, houses um, mothers and young children was bought the fraternity house and was going to it was going to put their their housing there and the neighborhood threw a fit there then too and I'm like I would definitely rather have a house with mothers with small with small children than a fraternity house in my neighborhood any day of the right. week <laughs> because, of, because of density right, right. I mean scared yeah. of density it's amazing. I think it, it really goes back to just sort of, I think two things. It, one, I think historically affordable housing, um, the way that it was built from the eighties on, or maybe the seventies on was very, very dense new construction and still is often the, 
the typical model for affordable housing developers now is like 40 units or more. And that's how they make the deals work. It's very hard to make them work otherwise. And they use low-income housing tax credits. And in order to be competitive to receive those, you have to have a pretty dense big project. So then you have, you know, density of poverty and a kind of a big new, like you were saying, a rectangular building that stands out and doesn't really integrate subtly into the neighborhood. But if you have something that 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 does look just like every other house on the block, that I think it can help reduce that stigma. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think just density in general, sort of the way that our culture has and our society has slowly over decades prioritized single family home ownership and single family homes is the only way to uh, for a neighborhood really to thrive and for people to attain wealth and to have high property values. It sort of is a um, feedback loop that has discarded, I think, a lot of the social benefits of slightly more dense neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and and I know that because that is the move in 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 uh, planning is to move towards more dense more density. And I've heard a, a, on on NPR a lot of people being very upset in, especially in the West where it's definitely less dense than the East coast, people being upset about not having single family houses. And, mm-hmm. and I was, I was born in, um, in Colorado and my, my dad's family is from Oregon. So yeah, I see that there's just a lot of little, you know, individual houses on, on lots, but it mm-hmm. makes sense to make it more dense. It, it you know, the, the, yeah, it does. Yeah. I think to speak to your question about challenges, that was sort of what I was going to get. Oh into. yeah. Yeah idea of the missing middle housing is what planners call it this um housing that really um historically existed i think if you look at the turn of the century and we look at this i think it's fascinating in the roanoke history records a lot of the neighborhoods and houses that we are focused on um did exist this way 100 years ago 120 years ago the houses would have had one family and then maybe a tenant living with them or two tenants or during the great depression, the original family was there and they had five tenants Um, and they had a flexibility of use that allowed the houses to fluctuate during different economic downturns and productivity. And um, it, it just, it stopped when we kind of got into a form of zoning that restricted use very specifically. Right. And that then created these very narrow, um, very narrow neighborhood delineations. Mm -hmm. And you have an RM1 neighborhood and an RM2 neighborhood, and they look very, very different. And RM2 allows for flexibility in our in our city and in, in multiple units and an RM1 is all single family and right um, but a hundred years ago you would have had all of that kind of mixed together right people and, yeah there yeah and and there were multi there was multi-generational housing where right. you know after it's kind of with the the change in building after world war ii you know then we went to you know just exactly. your nuclear family and and not um you're not that not that extended family too. And I think so planners are seeing now the benefit of this, what we had before, which mm-hmm. allows for, you know, like a flat grandmother flat, as they say, over the garage or, right. um, you know, it, it's, it gets murky and, you know, kind of problematic in some ways, because a lot of people are trying to change this on local 
um, land use for Airbnb use, which is not really the same thing. And it's, it's not. It, yeah, it, it can be, it's like you're getting good code changes out of it, but you're, you're not getting the same benefit of what we're talking about. Right. But at the end of the day, it's also still a source of revenue. Airbnb is for people. I'm a big believer that if the homeowner is there and it's a source of revenue, then right. it's kind of similar. But when they're an absent homeowner, it's not, it doesn't have the same benefit. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, and you're and you're taking housing stock away from people that live and work there. Right. And so and we in Roanoke, we don't really have that kind, we have a lot of Airbnbs, but we don't have that really strong shift that I think more advanced markets do, like you know bigger cities with right. really competitive housing markets. So I can't speak to our experience being reflective of what other cities are dealing with, but all that being said is that that sort of flexibility and older neighborhoods, they're walkable, they're reflective of the, you know, the region's history. They right. have a lot of great amenities and they just kind of create these thriving neighborhoods that, um, that I love and would love to see more of. And a lot of planners would love to see more of, but um, I think in order to see more of that, you really do have to have, um, I think, either planners that can change the code without getting a lot of NIMBY backlash, which right. is very difficult, or you have to just kind of shift, I think, the stigma of rental, affordable, and density. Mm -hmm. and, and there's like a, there is a slow shift happening, but it's, it's not there yet. I right. think it's no, one I, of the challenges we deal with, I would say, you know, I'm a big proponent of it, but it's not as readily, you know, available to see in our community as, as we would like. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, um, what trends or challenges do you, do you see in preservation? I mean, I think, like I just said, a lot of, um, the small scale preservation, that we do is very different from your typical. So my husband and I met because he's also uh, a developer. He develops market rate um, preservation projects in our downtown of downtown Roanoke. And um, so the work that he does, he may, he might take an old warehouse and turn it into 25 units is very, very different from one house that we do. And, you know, one of the big challenges that we deal with, I think really since the tax law changed, and I don't know if you've heard this in your other um, podcasters that you've talked to, but since the federal tax law changed, um, syndicating federal credits has become a lot harder for small scale developers. Um, you know, it used to be, cause we're a nonprofit, we have to sell our federal right. and state tax yeah. credits. And so we are looking for people that wanna buy you know, not a large number of credits. So it's a little bit harder to market them. And right. um, the federal credits now have to be, you know, used over a course of five years. And that changed in the tax law of, I believe it was 2000, it went into effect 2018, I think, mm -hmm. is that right? I think, um, yeah, I think that is right. So any property we did before that, it was a lot easier to sell those. And now it's it's just trickier. It, it means that, you know, we just put a lot more time and energy into finding investors. And then um, we don't get as good of a price per dollar on the credit. So right. I'm a big advocate for, you know, this small scale preservation, but it comes with, I think, a lot of difficulties from an economic side of, you know, there's a right. reason why a lot of people don't do these deals because yeah. 
there's not a lot of money back, but that's why we're a nonprofit. So, you know, we're not looking for a return on our investment. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find though, that over like over time that it, it does eventually balance out with the rental income or. Yeah, I think because we're also, we have, we have a fundraiser every year. We have donors locally that give to us. Our properties do pay us a small management fee each month. And, um, and we do get lots of grants. So cobbling all those resources together, we're able to pay salaries to, you know, three employees. And then we have a lot of contract work as well that we do. Um, So it does work out. We're definitely profitable as a nonprofit, but but it's, it is, um, as far as development goes, it's very different from what other developers right. see with those kinds of projects. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know, yeah. And you were talking about the bigger, you needing more units cause they need the units to, to get what they, what they need out of it. Right. So, um, is there anything that, as we were talking that you wanted to share that maybe I didn't ask you about? Hmm. Let's see. I think, oh, I just, you know, kind of going back to some of the challenges mm-hmm. on specific projects, I was going to mention that probably every project has its own unique challenges mm-hmm. because we don't, um, we don't really do any one project the same way over and over. So because we're community-based, we find a house first and then we decide Um, based off the level of damage and based off the size and the floor plan, um, then we kind of go from there. We say, are we going to do this or not? And then uh, we create the unit matrix, how that's going to work, what the um, funding needs to be to cover the construction, and then what the income needs to be operationally. Um, But each project presents its own challenges because we find the house first. We don't just say, this is our model. Right. And let yeah. that come to us. I think that's the opposite of what most affordable housing developers do, or most affordable housing developers, like I was saying, use LIHTC, low income housing tax credits. They're looking for a deal based off of what will give them the credits. Right. So they'll just search for a piece of land or building until it meets that criteria. And we're the exact opposite where we already found our project and then we're going to find the funding model and the, um, kind of what demographics and what unit matrix and everything works after that. Um, So with each project, you might have um, a challenge with funding or you might have an issue like a giant hole in the roof that's been there for six years and all the floor damage related to that um, structural damage. We might have nimbyism, backlash or zoning issues. And so each project is very different and um, complicated, but I think that they've never been um, discouraging to a point where it isn't fun to do this work. It's always really fun. I think it's yeah. it's fun to be presented with a challenge and have to think creatively about how to fix it. There's some houses that, you know, structural engineers said you have to tear this down the first time we saw it. And, and then you just keep going till you find a structural engineer that says no. Well, and yeah. When you were talking about the logs, I, I, that was mm-hmm. the first thought I had trying to get an engineer to sign yeah. off on that because it doesn't fit into their computer model. Right. It's yeah. like, you just keep, you keep going. Cause it's almost like you can, it, it, I don't want to get to, I'm going to like jinx myself and have a project that doesn't work, but it's very, there are ways to make almost any preservation project work with the right, um, 
I think fortitude and uh, creativity. I agree. And, and, and having people that know what they're looking at, because some oftentimes when you get the people who say it won't work, they've never done it before. And so they just assume that it won't work. Right. Yeah. And so we've found some people locally that are really help, really helpful in um, looking at these projects creatively also, you know, and like coming in and saying, you know, this is like a puzzle and we're going to put it together this way and a contractor that loves to do the really, really tricky puzzling mm -hmm. projects is, is key. <laughs> yes. um, but, you know, I think that what we have at our, an, as a tool that's really helpful is being a nonprofit that can get affordable housing funding and can get historic tax credit funding because some of these projects need so much work. Right. That if you just use the tax credit funding, it wouldn't be enough. Right. Um, and if you just use the affordable housing funding, it wouldn't be enough. So you really need both resources mm -hmm. available to offset the costs. And there are great resources in the affordable housing world right now for nonprofits. So we've benefited from, I think, being able to pull from both sides of these two different worlds to make the funding work. Yeah, that I, that's what I think is exciting about the work that you're doing is, is that you're, you're you know, definitely using this or tax credits, you're, you're, you're restoring to what the, what the, the standards would be, but then you're also, you know, creating affordable housing. And I think, I think that that's, that is it solving two problems. And I, I think that that's, that's, um, that's a great mission. How can our listeners support your work? Sure. Um, well, we, like I said, are a nonprofit, so they can support us through donations if they feel so inclined. <laughs> um, they can just follow us on social media too and stay uh, connected to what we're doing. So you can find us on Facebook at Restoration Housing, Instagram, LinkedIn. We, our website is restorationhousing.org uh, and you can donate on our website. You can connect with us um, either following us on social media or um, connecting through info at restorationhousing.org. And you can um, sign up for our newsletter that way as well. So we send a monthly newsletter with information about what we're doing. And that newsletter also usually kind of gets um, distilled down into social media posts. Mm -hmm. So if you'd rather not get email, but you want to stay connected, you can just follow us on social media. Oh, very good. Well, and local, we have a fundraiser locally too, okay. but probably not that many locals listening. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe after you push, put it out on your social media, <laughs> yeah. but the, um, the, um, I was going to say that, um, we'll make sure that all of those ways to contact you and to, to support you are listed on our webpage where the, the podcast is hosted. So if somebody's listening, didn't get a chance to write them down, they can go there and find, find links to you. Yeah. Great. Thanks. So very good. Oh, and YouTube. Sorry. I should have mentioned oh, we, YouTube. Sure. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll write that down. Did, uh, ever since COVID we've gotten really yeah. good at, um, you know, some homespun videos and then some actual, uh, some actual real um, videographers helped us as well. Yeah, I saw I, when I was doing research for the podcast, I did see you had like a walkthrough of a house a video. Yeah. And I thought yeah, that was we love fun. to do those. Yeah. We call them our hard hat tours. Mm -hmm. We've got these little series called architectural minutes that get into like the history and 
of the buildings and the neighborhoods. And then we have our campaign, um, a virtual campaign that goes with our luncheon that's sort of for our fundraising that, um, that will also be on our YouTube channel. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.